to Acts chapter 17, Sunday morning studying the book of Acts together. And we come to chapter 17, verse 10. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and they'll put a Bible in your hand and, and uh, it'll be marked for our passage. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. I sought the Lord, uh, had been continually doing that for the last couple of weeks for somewhere that he might want to direct me for a New Year's message. And I think... Basically, that's going to happen, you know, tonight related to prayer, and, uh, and he, didn't, he didn't lead me any place on it, and, and so we go back into the book of Acts, but you could hardly choose a better uh, passage for heading into the new year uh, than what we, we come to this morning. Acts chapter 17, verse 10, and then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away at, to go uh, to the sea, uh, but both, Paul, uh, both Silas and Timothy remained there. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come with him at all speed, uh, they also soon departed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. And as we look at it, we wonder what, what would you speak into the daily of our lives from um, these verses? And yet we realize that the volume of the book testifies to Jesus we realize that every portion of it not only edifies us and thoroughly equips us unto every good work, but every part is a necessary part of that equipping. And so we look forward to unpacking this this morning in fellowship with your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would take the eternal truths that are found in these handful of verses, lift them off of the page of this eternal book, Lord, and give them a permanent and a living place in each one of our lives and in our relationship with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So here in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, we join the Apostle Paul on his uh, second missionary journey. We've been away from him for a week or so. And he's on his second missionary journey with a companion by the name of Silas and also another companion who joined them along the way, a young protege or disciple by the name of Timothy. They just departed from the city of Thessalonica where Paul had uh, reasoned with the Jews in the Jewish synagogue uh, from the Scriptures on three consecutive Sabbaths. And he demonstrated there from the Old Testament how it is that the Messiah... Uh, was going to need to suffer and to die 
and to rise again, and that Jesus was indeed that Messiah. And so a great multitude, we're told, believed upon Jesus at that synagogue in uh, Thessalonica. A church was planted, a church, a miracle. A church was established in that city that had never been, uh, ever been established in the city uh, before. And as all of these wonderful things are happening, there were other Jews within a synagogue who became envious over the success of uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and the power of the gospel and how many people were now beginning to follow Jesus. And so they created an uproar in the city and uh, they were intent upon having Paul and Silas and Timothy arrested and for harm to be done uh, to them. But the new Christians that were there in Thessalonica, they sent them away by night to uh, Berea, a distance of about 50 miles, probably about three days to cover uh, on foot. In Berea, as we see here, Paul continues uh, his pattern of going when he came into a city that had a Jewish synagogue to begin his uh, attempt to impact that city with the gospel and establish a church, he, he began in the synagogue. And so he does that in order to uh, gain a foothold within the city. And uh, the methodology is perfectly logical, as you see, and we see him doing it over and over and over again. Uh, but it did require some uh, considerable uh, courage on the part of the Apostle Paul in continuing to do this. Now, after having been to Thessalonica on his missionary journeys, uh, when he was kind of rushed out of, of Thessalonica, that then constituted the sixth uh, city that he had been to on this missionary journey where he had either been threatened with imprisonment uh, arrest or with bodily harm and then was forced to leave the city. You would think concerning the Apostle Paul uh, that the last place he would ever want to go into when he came into a new city would have been a synagogue. Let's rethink this. Where's the Grange Hall uh, or where are the Odd Fellows meeting and we'll, you know, rent that room. But he continues to go into the synagogue because God had declared that the gospel was to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so Paul continues that pattern at uh, tremendous expense to himself. It really speaks to uh, his courage. It speaks even more uh, to his commitment to God's call upon his life to be faithful to that call, uh, whatever the price might be uh, that he would have to pay in order to do that. And it really speaks, I think, powerfully to us. And I wonder if there might not be one or two of us here this morning where you are seriously contemplating abandoning uh, your area of service for God or God's calling upon your life because it's just become so hard and it, it, it gets hard. It really does. And not the least of which is the spiritual warfare that's involved in it that just never, ever stops. And I think God wants to just remind you uh, and encourage you through uh, the faithfulness and of the Apostle Paul to continue no matter how hard uh, things got. Uh, usually things get difficult in, in ministry and warfare increases and so forth simply because uh, your life is being 
powerful and is being influential in ways that you can't even see. All you see is the hardship, and uh, that uses up all of the oxygen in the room, and you don't see all the good things that are going. Be encouraged by Paul. Stay in your place and, and uh, continue what God has called you to do. Now, the results of Paul's preaching to these uh, in, in this synagogue in Berea uh, are told us here in the passage. We're told that many Jews within the synagogue then put their faith in uh, Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. And a, a great number of uh, Greeks who were God-fearers, uh, both prominent women within the synagogue and within the city, Gentile women and Gentile men, they trusted in Jesus as their Savior. The second result was that when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that Paul had made his way to Berea and was now preaching the gospel there and probably hearing about it because it was being done to great uh, effect, they then proceeded to make the 50-mile journey themselves from Thessalonica to Berea in order to resist what Paul was doing as they had done in Thessalonica, and they stirred up a crowd once again and uh, to oppose them and to threaten their physical safety and their freedom. And it resulted in these new Christians there in Berea now sending Paul away for his own safety. And Paul then proceeded uh, to Athens. He leaves Silas and he leaves Timothy in the city of Berea in order to help establish them, the, the church there a little bit longer. Paul appeared to be the main target uh, of the persecution. Now, the remainder of our time here, I'd like to focus on a very, very uh, important verse that's found in the passage, and it's verse 11, because something very wonderful is revealed to us in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 17. Did I mention Acts chapter 17, verse 11? Acts 17, 11, uh, right there in that, that passage. When I was a new Christian, and I became a new Christian in uh, not the midst of the Jesus movement, but probably uh, toward the end of uh, the Jesus movement of the 60s, 70s, and, uh, and, and 80s. And the, one of the great battle cries that was being spoken uh, at that time among Christians was this thing called, uh, remember the Alamo. No, it wasn't that. Or remember the main. You know, we have these battle cries that we have um, that are intended to stir us up in remembrance of something. But the battle cry was, be a Berean. Be a Berean. And that was something that I heard over and over again. And principally, from one very, very prominent teacher within uh, Calvary Chapel, and he was always uh, challenging his listeners not to believe anything that he said when he taught, but to look, study it and examine it for themselves out of the Scriptures and constantly exhorting his listeners to be uh, a Berean. And it always uh, resonated with me. I've always desired to be a Berean ever since. And it's done me only good. And so let's examine what being a Berean uh, means in the sense that he used it, what he was exhorting uh, me and everyone else to become, and what the passage exhorts each of us as Christians uh, to be as well. Now, 
Let's begin with the Holy Spirit's description of those in Berea in verse 11 when he calls them more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And I actually, usually I like the New King James translation over the Old King James translation, but here I don't like it as much. In the Old King James, uh, it declares these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And the word that is used there, it means well-born. And it speaks of a nobility among these uh, Thessalonians or Bereans within that uh, synagogue. It speaks of nobility in the best sense of the word. Now today, because there's such a clash between the classes and so forth, nobility or uh, the noble class of people sometimes can be looked down upon because in many cases nobility in terms of, of rank, it's usually passed on from one generation to the other without any merit, uh, you know, behind who it passes on to. But that's not what's being spoken about here when it talks about nobility. This speaks of a nobility, a rising to the top, uh, a rising above others that is deserved and that is earned and well-deserved. It's based upon the person actually being uh, a, of a noble character. And the idea concerning this nobleness is that they stand out from the mass of humanity. They're the rarer kind of person. They're the exception to the rule this kind of person is extraordinary. So these he sees here in verse 11. He, the Holy Spirit's first observation is those in that synagogue, they were far, more fair-minded or more noble than those in Thessalonica. And then notice very carefully the two characteristics that the Holy Spirit gives us that characterizes such a person. If he said, well, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica, we would forever wonder why the Holy Spirit considered them more noble. But when he goes on and says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica and then says in that, that tells us he's now about to give us the reason for why the Holy Spirit uh, put that estimation uh, upon them. And so notice that here now he describes in the rest of verse 11 uh, the marks of nobility, the marks of a noble character. First he said, it, it is in that they receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind. That's how it is in the old King James, and we're just going old King James this morning in this Bible study. And, and so it declares that they receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind. Now, remember, when the Apostle Paul ministered the Word of God in that synagogue in uh, Thessalonica, that some of the Jews became Christians. In fact, a very significant number did, and an even larger number of Gentile men and women did. But again, out of envy, the majority of the Jews within the synagogue uh, they were threatened by the power of the gospel and the influence of Paul, and uh, so they refused to give Paul's teaching uh, concerning Jesus a fair chance or a fair hearing. And so what is sp being spoken of here is when Paul came into Berea that he didn't run into any of that 
in the synagogue in Berea. Instead, what he found were fair-minded, open-minded, in the best sense of the word, open-minded listeners. And the idea is further that they were free of prejudice. And so, this was the attitude with which uh, they came to listen to what Paul had to say. Within that statement that they received the word uh, with all readiness of mind, that word readiness is, is important to understand in its original language. It literally means eagerness. Uh, that is the, it's a wonderful thing to teach anything, but it's certainly a wonderful thing to teach the Bible uh, to an audience or a group of people who are eager uh, to uh, hear what it is that's being said. Uh, sometimes some of you might uh, notice that so when I look around the room and uh, sometimes my eye will go back to the same uh, number of people in the course of a sermon uh, over and over and over again, never take that personal. Never take that as, oh, that point must be the Holy Spirit to me, you know, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself, go thou and do likewise, you know. Uh, no, no, it's nothing of the sort. I'm not nearly that spiritual. I just like to find eager faces. And when I see an eagerness related to the Word of God in somebody's faith, face, even if they're thinking about going to Costco after the service, but they are put their face out there like that, well, I glom onto it. But that was the heart of the congregation there uh, in Berea. They had an eagerness concerning the Word of God, and the word even me, it literally means a rushing forward. It's kind of that leaning forward in their chair. They were not only listening to what Paul had to say, they were listening intently, they were absorbing it, they wanted to hear every single word and every single syllable that he was teaching them uh, from the Word of God. And so the first mark of nobility was that they possessed a sincere hunger for the Word of God. They were willing to discuss spiritual things, to give Paul's teaching and, and the gospel an honest hearing. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, Solomon wrote, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain, or that is acquire, wise counsel. So the wise man or woman is the one who doesn't think that they know everything yet, and the person who thinks that they don't know everything yet about any subject is a person who is still teachable. They're still interested in being stretched in their knowledge of whatever subject it might be. And here we're talking uh, about the Bible. But in their eagerness, their hunger to learn more, uh, as the proverb brings out, they couple with it a discernment concerning who they choose to learn from, and that's important. I think there's a certain kind of person in our culture, and I don't think it's unique to our culture. I think it's uh, just the fallenness of the whole world, actually. But there is a certain kind of person who simply refuses to listen to any contrary opinion on anything uh, related to what they believe. And they do so out of a fear that their beliefs might somehow be challenged and then uh, further exposed as false when compared with something else. 
And so they put up a barrier against that kind of thing happening, and there are certain things that they refuse to discuss or they cannot discuss without feeling threatened or becoming angry. And so anytime we resort, uh, I think it's important if, if that's the way that we handle our beliefs being challenged or being uh, stretched and, you know, shutting things off and bringing an end to conversations and, no, I don't want to talk about this. Anytime we resort to some artificial protection of what we believe, it's always a tacit confession on our part of the weakness of our belief, that it's not strong enough uh, to withstand the rigors of an examination. It's always a sign not of strength, but always a sign of uh, the weakness of my beliefs. And I think this is often behind uh, the demand of many uh, that they not be engaged about religion or about Christianity. And sometimes you'll hear people say that. I don't talk about religion. I don't talk about uh, Christianity. They slam the door. They don't want in any way to, uh, to allow that discussion uh, to occur. And I think that for some, they will not discuss it because they already have a deep-seated prejudice against Christianity and against the Bible. And so the second the subject comes up uh, in a conversation, uh, something about the Bible or Christianity, they bring that conversation to a screeching halt, and you understand this is not somewhere that they're going to go. I think there's other people who don't want their thinking or their doing or their lifestyle to be exposed by the Word of God or to even be tested by the Word of God, uh, either because uh, when they were exposed to the Bible sometime in their past, it brought conviction uh, or exposure to the lifestyle or their beliefs, and, uh, and so, you know, they got burned once related to that, and they're determined now not to have that happen again because their thinking and their lifestyle hasn't changed and so forth. And so, uh, because they've already had their sin exposed or a- as sinful or erroneous, then they don't want to go there at all. Or they just know intuitively that what they believe in the life that they're living is wrong, and they just know it. Their conscience is, is convicted about the choices that they're making. They know they're disappointed disappointing their parents or their family. They're even disappointing themselves and, and so forth. And, and uh, they know that the life that they're living is wrong. And so in order to avoid further conviction of their sin or the faultiness of their beliefs or their life choices, uh, they're presently enjoying their life just as it is, and they want to avoid any discussion of Christianity or the Bible at the moment, and that's where they want to camp, and I don't want to be disturbed. I'm happy with the life that I have. I know it's wrong, but I still want to live it, and so don't talk with me about these things. Jesus said in John chapter 3, He said, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And I I don't 
uh, say all of this to needlessly offend anyone. I lived a, a portion of my life in that uh, very same uh, condition of knowing that what I was doing was wrong and not wanting to talk to anyone about the Bible or Christianity or even right or wrong because I just wanted to live this way uh, for a while until I finally came to my senses and, and turned to the Lord. I remember that um, having a meal with a coworker once when I was uh, working for the phone company as a cable splicer, and we were restoring a cable in Emeryville and a major downtown 2,400-pair, 3,600-pair cable had gone out, and uh, it was a couple of days straight work to get all of that uh, put back together. And so we were having a meal together and um, talking about spiritual things, and he was into kind of a certain thing that claims to be based on the Scriptures but in large part isn't. And as we talked a little bit and at all, it became clear that he would either need to believe in what the Bible says about the subject or uh, what this religious system said about the subject. And then finally, uh, he, he pronounced, I don't want to talk about this anymore. You're ruining my meal. Now, you have to understand that when I talk with people about the things of the Lord, I don't put anyone in the corner and give them a three stooges twist of their nose and poke them in the eye and, and so forth. Um, I try to be spirit-led very much in those kind of of situations. And, uh, but here, just talking about the things of the Lord, and as soon as they get a little bit too close to home for him, he, he shut down the conversation. And I understood his discomfort completely. I mean, I, I've never won an argument with the Bible myself, and he was not winning the argument with the Bible, and so turn off, uh, turn off the argument. Now, the Bereans, in contrast here, they gave the gospel a fair and an honest hearing. And in fact, they did so, we're told, with all readiness. They wanted to hear everything that Paul had to say. Now, if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, but you are searching uh, in life for the meaning of life, the purpose of life, it's important for you to realize that God will never force himself on you. Uh, he will never force his truth upon you. He could do that in an instant, effortlessly. I mean, he could force the whole world to believe his truth. And uh, with the blink of an eye, it would take no effort at all. But that's not what he does. He will never force himself on you. He will never force his truth upon you. You'll always have the freedom to accept it or to reject it. And so why not become well-versed in your understanding of the Bible and his revelation of himself in the Bible before you reject it. But it's important to realize that ignorance, especially a determined, self-imposed ignorance, that that is never has been and it never will be a legitimate excuse for unbelief concerning the Bible or concerning the gospel, God's offer of salvation through His Son, Jesus. Everyone in this world has a responsibility to be alert enough, conscious enough, thinking enough in life to ask at some time in the course of our life, what is the meaning 
and the purpose of life. Why do I exist? Why are, am I the way that I am? Why is the world the way that it is, full of sinners? How did the heavens and the earth come into being? And not just the heavens and the earth, but uh, the, all of the seasons and the design that's even, uh, you know, characterizes the creation, a tree, a beaver, whatever it might be. How do we, why do we die what is the origin of death? How can I change and become a different person when I realize I'm, I'm not the person that I want to be? How can I be saved from the condition that I'm in? And then everyone has a responsibility to make the Bible a part of our search for the answers to those questions, and God intends it uh, to be so. I mean, when you had a theocracy in the Old Testament under the Jews, and God intends, intends the whole world to live under uh, the beauty and the government of His Word, but under the theocracy of the Jews, every Jew would be raised around the Scriptures. They would be raised with a, a knowledge of the Scriptures, so that if they then left that and turned away from it and went into the world to then explore other philosophies and other lifestyles and other beliefs and explore sin and so forth, this thing from the Bible was already planted within their life. They had within them, whether they liked it or not, they always had this comparison as they were living this life of their own choosing, forced to compare it with what they knew from the Bible. But as the world has become more and more secular, moved away from the Bible, now you have more and more people who are, have never been under its influence. All they've known is self-will, self-exploration of sin, and uh, the philosophies of the world and so forth, and their own philosophies. And now they live their life without any kind of contact with what is truth related to how we're to live and how we're to believe. But even though the world has become that, the Bible still declares that because the Bible exists in human history, every human being has a responsibility in their search for the answers to the big questions in life to go to the Bible in an attempt to discover whether the God of the Bible has the answer to those questions. And it's important to realize that that is a responsibility that each of us uh, has, and not to just reject the Bible or to reject the God of the Bible, not knowing nothing about the Bible or nothing uh, about Him. And the thing that happens when we do go to the Bible and we make it a part of our search, a search that everyone should be on until we know what the meaning and purpose of life is, is that when we do that, every honest and eager search for truth is going to end up like it ended up for the Bereans here. The Holy Spirit will lead us to a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and then into a personal relationship with God, the relationship that we've been created for. Again, every single human being has a personal responsibility to listen to and to know the claims of God in the Bible. 
And again, this is almost completely lost upon uh, people today. And so that's why I state it. I think the prevailing uh, feeling seems to be that if God is real, He knows where to find me, and it's 100% His responsibility to get my attention and to save me. And in the meantime, there are a lot of things I want to do in life, and there's a lot of things I want to buy just yet uh, in life. And that isn't true. Part of living a noble life is not to ignore all of these vital questions that the heavens and the earth and the creation that is all around us, the marvel of it, all of the vital questions that any thinking person ought to be asking or, the, or ignoring the empty spot in my life that only God can fill. But we have a responsibility to seek God out. And when we do, He will always meet us on that search. That's the first characteristic of uh, nobility as it's listed here. Second, we're told that they were uh, more noble than the Thessalonians in that they proceeded to search the Scriptures daily in order to find out whether the things Paul taught from the Scriptures were true. And that word searched in verse 11 is an interesting one. It literally means examined. It means to examine carefully. It means to examine intently. In other words, they listened to Paul's teaching, but then they took what they heard him teach and they studied it in the Scriptures themselves, and they tested it, and they judged it, and they did so in the light of the Scriptures, the Word of God. And so to their earnest listening to what Paul had to say, they now added a second thing, a vital thing, and that is a thorough examination of his teaching. And so they didn't just uh, do it just on the Sabbath day when they met in the synagogue, were told that they studied what Paul had taught in the Scriptures uh, daily. They tested what it was that he was saying concerning Jesus as the Christ. So clearly here you have a group of people who uh, held a, a very, very deep love for the Word of God, and they were deep students of the Word of God and held it in the highest esteem. I think that it's uh, wonderful, and I think it's remarkable too, looking back on this incident as we do now through 2,000 years of history. They're living it at that moment. We look back on it from, uh, through 2,000 years of history to notice that they tested even the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and in doing so, we're saying, we're not going to believe anything just because you're saying it. And Paul wasn't offended by that at all. Uh, they said, we're not going to believe it just because you said it. We're going to search the Scriptures to see whether what you've said is true. And Paul, of course, wasn't offended by it at all. And further still, you see, the Holy Spirit commended the Bereans for it. And no teacher of the Word of God should ever be uh, challenged or feel offended in any way that people listen to what they're saying, don't take it at face value, but they are determined to say, when I see it in the Scriptures or through further study, I will allow that to become a part of my heart, my life, my relationship with God, uh, but not just simply because uh, you say it. And it teaches us that 
We're never to elevate any Bible teacher above the Word of God itself. And so never take my word for anything in teaching without checking it out for yourself to make sure that that squares with the Word of God. No godly teacher will ever be offended by it. It warms uh, my heart when I'm teaching the Word of God and I say notice in verse 11 or notice in verse 24 or whatever it might be, and people's heads are going up and down in the passage. And looking, he says this, ah, there it is. All right, well, so it is. I'll allow him, you know, to speak further to me on the passage and, and all. And that is a, a wonderful thing that, that needs to happen. One of the things that, you know, uh, and I don't think we're ever going to be rid of it entirely, and I don't think that we really need to, so I don't want to be legalistic on this issue. But there are, when somebody teaches something like I teach something, and when you then are in a conversation with a family member or a friend, and you begin to talk about that subject, um, it isn't the best thing to say. Pastor Damien says, and then say that. It's okay to say, Pastor Damien teaches this, if you then go on and say, and I checked it out, and I agree with him on the basis of what Paul said in his second letter to the Thessalonians. No one wants to stay in a place in our Christian life where everything that we believe is because we believe it because some trusted teacher told us. The next step is to always either see it during the course of the study with my own eyes in the passage or further study it during the week, see it for myself, then it becomes mine, and then leave the teacher out of the mediator position and go right to the Bible and say, the Bible says, the Bible says this related uh, to that. And that's kind of the full place of the Word of God of the Word of God uh, going in a person's uh, life where we've studied it, it has become our own now, and then I will now speak it with authority uh, from the Scripture. The teacher merely got me thinking about it. He merely got me or she uh, studying it a little bit further, but now it's become mine uh, out of that uh, study. And so it's important for us as Christians to test all teaching by asking ourselves, where is that in the Bible? Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in his first epistle, chapter 5. He said, test all things and hold fast to what is good. And how do we test all things? We test it by the Word of God. And if it matches the standard of the Word of God, it's good. We can hold fast to it. If It'll be good for us. If it doesn't match the standard of God's Word, then it isn't good, and we let it go. For the Bereans here, the Bible was the standard for all doctrine and practice. In other words, they wanted a biblical basis for everything they believed and everything that they lived. Doctrine and practice, that's what they wanted. Where is that in the Bible? You want me to believe that? Then show it to me in the Bible. Uh, you, want, uh, you say that I should do that? then show it to me in the Bible. They wanted a biblical basis for everything, even from the Apostle Paul. And I think that it's important to notice that they wanted, 
their doctrine and practice in their life to be something that was clearly taught in the Scriptures and not based upon uh, the silence of the Scriptures. And here's what I mean by that. I've noticed over the long years, now decades, of being a Christian that many of the kind of crazy fads and winds of doctrine that have gone through the church in uh, the 37 years now uh, that I've known the Lord and walked with the Lord, as they've gone through the body of Christ in the United States of America as a, as a whole, um, they're, so often they're things that there's no biblical basis for them. Uh, they're not specifically forbidden, but there's no biblical base uh, for the practice. For instance, um, some of us can remember the whole thing of the healing of auras. Everybody had an aura. Oh, I see you've got a hole in your aura. Let's pray for you and, and pray for the healing of your aura. Uh, we remember the laughing in the spirit phase. Uh, within the body of Christ, the getting drunk in the spirit phase, or uh, the phase of uh, seeking God to change people's fillings in their mouth from silver to gold as a demonstration of God's presence and power and favor in a person's life. Well, listen, (laughs) while you're at it, just give me a new tooth, thank you. I mean, why would I want to go from silver to gold? It's a softer metal anyway. If we're, if we're talking about God's presence and power, how about giving me the teeth I had when I was 18 years old? Thank you. And by the way, that reminds me, every day that your teeth don't hurt is a good day. So, and those of you who are younger say, what in the world is he talking about? You will find out. You don't have a temporary crown or a broken molar or this or that that you're dealing with all of the time. I heard that laugh. Somebody over here understands very well. I'd be equally as willing for a dentist to be drilling than to ever let a woman in my life. Some of you remember that from My Fair Lady. Uh, I don't bring it to mind as a commentary on women, but uh, as a commentary on dentists. And so where in the world was I here? But these things kind of go through... They've gone through the body of Christ, and we could spend the morning talking about these kind of things. And when sometimes they would be confronted and, and concerning the fact that they were unbiblical or extra-biblical, and they might say, well, you know, it's not in the Bible, but it's not specifically forbidden in the Bible. But one of the things that I like about the Bereans is they didn't want silence for their doctrine and their practices. They wanted a biblical basis for what they believed and the life that they lived and the practices that they invested themselves in. Someone has said, we don't need any new truths, but new experiences in the old truths, the biblical truths, and I believe that. To me, there is more than a lifetime worth of things to experience as a Christian that are clearly taught within the Scriptures and are thus legitimate without resorting to things that the Scriptures are silent on and brought uh, forward to us. Now, uh, and allow me to observe that in order for, in speaking about the Bereans and the testing of everything that Paul taught here, that in order to search the Scriptures in this way while listening to Bible teaching, I must bring my Bible with me to church. 
No Berean, no noble Christian comes to church without their Bible. Now, now I've gone from preaching to meddling, haven't I? You say, ouch, related to that. But I'm just saying. And so when we hand out the Bibles at the beginning of the service, and we're never going to stop doing that, the idea is not for someone who's known the Lord for two months and longer or owns a multitude of Bibles, and it doesn't matter whether the Bible is a hard copy or the Bible is an electronic version, but to bring a Bible. You do a disservice to me if you don't, to sit in, a, in this church or any church without a Bible open testing what's being taught. You are part of my accountability. I want you to, to test what it is that, that I'm, I'm saying. And so the Bibles that we provide, that's for people who are new to church or new to the fact that, oh, they're going to teach from the Bible here. I didn't know something like that would happen. Or they, they don't know the Lord yet and so forth. So it shouldn't be a pattern of, of using those or coming to church without a Bible because, again, it's unberean like It's not noble. It's not the best kind of Christian that we need to bring a Bible so that we can test everything that we're about to hear by the Scriptures. Now, certainly all of this has significant application to us as Christians as well. In other words, if these two uh, things are marks of nobility in a seeker uh, before becoming a Christian, then how much more should they characterize uh, our lives once we become Christians? Now, remember that as we began the study of the book of Acts, I stated that we didn't want to just study it solely as a history of the early church, but to, to take the time now here and with a desire to learn about the kind of Christianity that was not only able to survive in the early church against immense persecution, both religious and, and secular, and not only survive, but thrive and ultimately come to dominate the entire world so that we could take a look at the Christianity that has that kind of impact in the world and the kind of Christianity that produces this kind of a Christian so that we might then take that Christianity and put it up against what goes for Christianity in the United States of America now in the year 2017 and up against the Christianity of my own personal life and allow it to be challenged if necessary so that I don't spend my life or waste my life in a Christianity that is cultural or it is bogus or it is very far from what Jesus died on that cross and was buried and rose again in order to provide to each of us. And so we ask ourselves this morning in the privacy of our own hearts, do I receive the Word of God with all readiness of mine? Is that my attitude toward the Word of God? Is that my hunger for the Word of God? Does that represent my personal, honest hunger for the Word of God? And if it does, praise the Lord, you are in the Berean category on, on that issue. But if it never has, and you're a Christian, 
and you say, you know, Pastor, I, I come into the church, and it doesn't matter what church I come into, I have no hunger for the Word of God, not even in church. I've got a five-minute attention span related to the Word of God, and if somebody doesn't start telling a story about a puppy or kittens, I'm lost and, and make me cry a little bit and bring me back in, and then in all of this, I, I just don't have it. But I know I've trusted in Christ as my Savior. What you need, again, in the privacy of your heart, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And let the Holy Spirit bring into your life a love for the Word of God that marks the very life and attitude of Jesus toward the Word of God. And God will bring that into your life. There will be people up in front to pray with after the service. And you just come up to them and say that. Pastor talked about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I like that. I like my... Uh, hunger for the Word of God and other things to be revolutionized, and they'll pray with you for exactly that. And if any of us sit here today and the position that you're in or I might be in, if once we did have the hunger that we see in the Bereans here, uh, but now we don't, then to just ask God, and this is a wonderful thing about the new year, it's a reference point for, for going forward, and just ask the Lord to freshly fill me with the Holy Spirit and to renew that hunger in my life for the Word of God to where I prize it and I value it more than even my daily bread. Otherwise, I'm afraid if we compare ourselves among ourselves in this age and in the Christianity in the United States of America without testing it against the Bible, I get concerned without this plumb line of the Word of God that we will potentially uh, become the proverbial frog who's being slowly boiled to death in the lukewarmness of the age toward the Word of God. And to say, this is not acceptable for me. I have known a better season in my life. I want that season again. And to ask God to lead you back uh, into it. And then the second thing that we allow the passage to ask us in the privacy of our own hearts is, do I search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so? Am I a diligent student of the Word of God on a daily basis to where I eager to know it deeply, and I'm, I'm armed with this uh, practical, I, I possess a practical working knowledge of the Scriptures. I can talk to Jehovah Witnesses on my doorstep, Mormons on my doorstep. I wouldn't be afraid if somebody were to ask me how to give my life to the Lord or what does the Bible say on this subject. That's the place that all of us uh, want to get to and need to get to uh, over a reasonable amount of time uh, as, uh, uh, as Christians. And if I'm not, if I'm not a student of the Word of God, and this is more than just hearing. They listened, but then they went deeper into the Word on those issues. If I'm not, then to, by the grace of God, commit to going deeper in my understanding of the Word of God this year. 
buy a, a good uh, commentaries or good resources. So much is free online these days. Go to one of those four classes that's going to be offered on the Tuesday uh, evening. Other opportunities to grow in the Word of God, in men's Bible study, home fellowships, women's Bible study, on and on uh, we could go. But to look and say, I'm not uh, as deep in the Word of God as I would like to be. And I'll readily confess to you, I am not as deep in the Word of God as I want to be and as I need to be because life just keeps getting harder and the world is a more difficult place to live as a Christian and so forth. And so the knowledge of the Scriptures that I once had, they're not suitable for where, where I'm going. And so it challenges me too. And I I want to be much deeper in the Word of God and, and in my relationship with God at the end of 2017, if he tarries, than at the beginning of it. And so these are the marks of, of nobility in Christianity, the marks of a Christian who is noble in his or her attitude toward the Word of God, noble in the place that he or she uh, gives it in their life. And so a wonderful commitment to make as necessary as we come into the new year. So as that uh, Bible teacher from 35 years ago uh, was saying in his exhortation, be a Berean. Again, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. They receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind and search the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, the two characteristics of uh, a Berean Christian. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and uh, you want to investigate the claims of the Bible, the claims and the teaching of Jesus, immediately after the service, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front, and they would be happy to supply you with a free Bible for doing that. And then keep coming to church. Keep listening. There have been people who've sat in this church for two years uh, before ultimately. Now they get it. Now they see it. And then they become a Christian. We don't like the two-year wait uh, on things, but everybody has their own path. And so receive the Bible. Begin to investigate the life of Jesus. We are never afraid of where an honest seeker who takes his search or her search to the Bible for the meaning of life and for the forgiveness of sins and the answers to the big questions in life, where the Bible will lead them. We know it will lead them by the Holy Spirit to the feet of Jesus. If you sit here this morning and you say, I don't need that, I want to do that this morning. I want to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and begin the relationship with God that I've been created for. These same men and women would love to pray with you and for you to receive that forgiveness and begin that relationship this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we bless you this morning for the Berean spirit that has characterized this church now for decades, and we thank you for it. Thank you for your grace, Lord, and producing an earnestness within our heart, a hunger for your word 
that is way beyond something that is natural in us. And your willingness, Lord, to keep it growing within our lives so that it might never wane. And then in knowing the Bible, to come to know you and the way that it reveals you to us. And thank you, Lord, for, for, for providing mankind and us included with this incredible book called the Bible and the ability to search it, Lord, and to put uh, to the test all uh, truth and philosophy and, and opinions as they come across our life to the standard of this, your word, and then the life that is produced. Thank you for making us Bereans, Lord. We ask that you would take us by the hand and take us even further down that path as we enter now into 2017, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.